All right, so the scripture reading is from Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 57 through 80. I'm reading out of the ESV, and it's on the screen as well. You have Bibles in front of you if you want to grab those too. Uh, so this is the story of when John the Baptist was born. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve with him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Thank you, brother. So um, when I... Uh, Graduated from the University of Northwestern St. Paul. I was um, a part of a Bible study that I had served in and was a part of and continued doing it. Um, in my own eyes, I was a pretty exceptional servant of God. I um, was volunteering my time. I was giving myself to, to serve people to help them love Jesus more. And so I made a deal with myself. I thought, wow, Ross, think of all the fruitful ways that God is using you. Because of that, you can have a little area of sin in your life. That, that, that's what you earned. Uh, your fruitfulness is up here, so you can have this little area of sin because look how much work for the kingdom you're doing. And the tension, question I want to ask you guys right now is how do we think about the little areas of our lives where we allow sin to grow? How does God feel about those areas? Is he okay with it? And what plan does he have for us in those areas? Even if it's not hurting anyone else, right? That's what we tell ourselves. This area is okay as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. That's the question our verses this evening are going to help us answer. 
Now, I was able to preach on this text almost exactly one year ago for our uh, Christmas service. And I know you all remember every single word of that sermon, so I'm not going to preach it again. I'm going to preach it with a slightly different emphasis. Last year, I preached about how Jesus sets us free from the penalty of sin, how because of what Jesus did, we're not guilty of our sin anymore. And this, this week, I want to preach on another step that the gospel has for us, another blessing that Jesus has in store for us, that he helps us stop sinning, which is just as sweet. So um, to set the scene, um, we're talking about women having miraculous pregnancies and miraculous births. Um, we're just going to have to go pretty quickly through verses 57 through 66. But essentially, Elizabeth has this child that she's been waiting for. She finally has this child. God answered his promise. And she doesn't want to name the child Zechariah Jr. like everyone wants her to. Instead, she insists on naming the child John. And finally, when Zechariah obeys God and believes his promises and follows through with naming him John, he can talk again. And everyone's like, what's going on? This guy who was silent is talking again. And then he goes further than that, and he opens his mouth and declares this prophecy that we are going to focus on. So what is this prophecy about? Let's bring up uh, verses, verse, ch chapter 1, verse 69. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. What is this prophecy about? You might think that he would begin by talking about his son, John. Like, that's his wife is pregnant with, that's who is born. But he doesn't. He starts by talking about Jesus. The reason he talks about Jesus is because Jesus is greater than John. John's only there to point us to Jesus. And so even the father of John the Baptist spends his time focusing his prophecy on Jesus. Now, what does he have to say about Jesus? The theme of the whole prophecy is that God has visited and redeemed his people. That's what we're going to see that Jesus came to do. He came to visit and to redeem his people. And though, I don't know about you, but those aren't words that I usually use in my day-to-day -day vocabulary. At least in the sense that this is using them. I, I guess I go to visit people. I haven't redeemed anything lately. What, what are these words referring to? And we're going to do a little jumping through the Bible here. Because like so much of the Bible, Luke is referring to redemption history past. He's referring to an event that already happened in the Bible to help us understand what God is doing. Because God likes to work in patterns. So let's start with the word visit and redeem. Um, these words refer back to the Exodus, which, as you know, is a, an event in the Bible where God's people were in slavery in another nation— that wasn't their own. And probably outside of Jesus, the most amazing event in history ever happened. Like, if you think about what happened, millions of people in slavery in another country, and God starts sending plagues and judgments and devastation against the country until he brings out a whole group of very needy people and saves and rescues them from oppression. That, that is the exodus that these verses are referring back to. And in that story, when Moses goes and he tells the people that God is about to take you out of your slavery, he's about to save you from the situation that you're in, the, this is what 
Exodus chapter 4, 31 says how the people responded. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So God drawing near to help them is what the Israelites referred to as a visit. So Zechariah is saying, God's about to pay you another visit. Like, like what happened back in the Exodus when he saved millions and millions of people? He's going to do something like that again. Okay, and then later in Exodus, as we fast forward, God commanded Moses to say again to the people of Israel, this is Exodus 6, 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arms and with acts of judgment. Now that word redeeming is actually a very powerful word. If your friend or family member was for sale on a slave market, think about how disgusting that would be. Someone you know is literally for sale to be a slave. The money you would pay to buy that person back and to set them free is the redemption price. So God was seeing himself as coming to rescue his friends and family from slavery in Egypt. He is paying the price to take them out, and what he did in redemption past, he is going to do again. Now, the catch is, is that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than anything else that ever happened in the Bible. And so as mind-boggling and amazing as taking a whole people out of slavery in the land of Egypt is, what God came and did in Jesus is greater still. Often we don't have eyes to see what he did, because it takes spiritual eyes to discern it, but what he did is greater than what happened in the Exodus. This visit and redemption is a greater one. And we're going to see it as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, week by week, passage by passage, that Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life in our place. He dies in our, in our place. He rises from the dead. And Zechariah is so sure that all this is going to happen, even when Jesus even, is not even born yet. He says, God has visited and redeemed his people. This is the greater event that's happening. So what does it mean, though? What, I want to push into, what does it really mean? that Jesus sets us free from sin, that Jesus visits and redeems us. Like, like, at the end of the day, okay, you said that God visited and redeemed people and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. What does it mean for us that he does this? And it means more than one thing. It means more than one thing. The first one I hinted at, and this is not what I want to focus on today, but I do need to mention it, is that Jesus frees us from the penalty of sin. It's one of the ways he frees us. And what that means is that when someone finally stops trying to earn God's love and acceptance, when someone finally stops trying to get God to accept them based on their own moral performance, and finally trusts in Jesus, he will immediately forgive that person of all their sin and bring them into a relationship with himself. It's the most beautiful thing that could ever happen to someone. And if it hasn't happened to you yet today, and you're in church, and you've been going to church for years and years and years, it could happen today. Just talk to me or anyone, any other of our members. And some of you Christians who've been trusting in Jesus for a long time, 
still feel the bondage of guilt and shame on your life right now. And when Jesus sets you free from the penalty of sin, he also sets you free from its guilt and shame and the bondage that it continues to hold upon you. So that is one of the things it means when Jesus came to set us free from our sins. And just so you know, I'm not just making this up. This is what the verses 76 and 77 say later in the prophecy when God is talking about John the Baptist and what he says John the Baptist will be saying about Jesus. And you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. I wanted to start there because for any of us, until you have the forgiveness of your sins from God, nothing else matters in your life. Nothing else matters. You can find a wife, get a job, help orphans and widows, and nothing matters until your sins are forgiven. I want to focus, though, the rest of our time on another aspect of the forgiveness, of the freedom from sin that we receive in Jesus. And we see this in the purpose of God's redemption when he saved his people in the Exodus. So let's think for a moment. Why did God save his people from slavery in Egypt? Why did he go through all that trouble to perform all those miracles? Why would he bring those judgments down upon the Egyptians and take his people out into the wilderness and care for them and give them a promised land? Like, what, like why? And there's many reasons. But one reason in the book of Exodus that keeps coming up time and time again, we find in Exodus chapter 7, verse 16. God says, And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. The Hebrew word serve means that God wanted his people to come out of Egypt so that they could start to do his will. There's a change of allegiance. They were in Egypt doing Pharaoh's will. God wants the people to come out of Egypt so that they can do his will. He wants them to serve the king of kings, not some false, phony human king. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why Pharaoh was so dead set on stopping them from leaving. He didn't want to lose their worship. He didn't want to lose their allegiance. He didn't want God to receive the glory from them. He wanted to receive the glory from them. And what I was struck by when I was studying the text for today, the text that we are looking at, is that the very same reason that God said he wanted to free his people from Egypt and from slavery is the very same reason he wanted to visit and redeem you. The very same reason God brought a whole people out of slavery in Egypt is the same reason Jesus came to die on the cross for you. Let's take a look at verses 74 and 75. So he visited and redeemed us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. 
God's purpose in setting us free from our sin is so that we would serve him instead of any modern-day pharaoh, any other false king who's setting himself up above and over God. He wants to set you free from serving your own flesh. He wants to set you free from serving the world and its godless value system. He wants to set you free from serving the devil. Now, I'm about to say this, and and it's so important for unbelievers who have not yet believed in Jesus to understand this. And it's so important for me as a believer and everyone as a believer to understand this because this is so contrary to the way our flesh operates. The way our flesh operates is I obey God in order to be accepted by God. I perform and achieve in order to be received by God. And if we focus, if we read the text that we just read, and we read the Bible, that is the wrong order. That's the order that enslaves you. That's the order that locks you in endless cycles of performance and trying to earn God's love and acceptance instead of receiving it. And that will keep you from serving him. What's the true biblical order? The true biblical order is God has freely accepted me. Therefore, I obey. You see the difference? That's what it's like to serve a king who has set you free. He's already accepted you. He's already adopted you. Therefore, you get to obey him. Now, what I want to emphasize in the land on us is that this ability to obey Jesus is a part of what Jesus died to give us. So often, we elevate the forgiveness of sins as the ultimate, the best thing that Jesus gave us, and I'm so glad that he did. And we leave obedience and following him and being like him over off to the side of second importance. Like, I want to do this, but this is what's really important, that I'm forgiven. But I don't see that anywhere. Man, I see I get to be like Jesus and I get to follow him and I get to obey him as a central thing that the biblical authors are celebrating and enjoying. This is in secondary Christianity that Jesus becomes your king and rules over every part of your life. This is up there at the same level as our sins are forgiven. I think there's this sense that we can get as some of us have, that I have become a Christian because Jesus will forgive my sins and obedience is just a part of the Christian life that I do because I have to. Like, I'll just suffer through it. I don't really get what I want, but it's okay because my sins are forgiven. And that's not what this text is saying. The text is saying you get to obey God. I couldn't obey God before, now I get to. I couldn't be like Jesus before, now I get to. This is as good as having my sins forgiven, is that I get to live a life like Jesus lived when he was here on the earth. I know we hear obedience and we think that's boring, but if you read the Bible, Jesus' life wasn't boring at all. Jesus' life was exciting and joy-filled and full of rescuing other people from sin and death. Oh, I want us to be as excited about living like Jesus as we are that our sins are forgiven. 
Let us have a mind shift that we get to live like Jesus because of everything that he's accomplished for us. He did not just set us free from the penalty of sin, church. He set us free from the power of sin. He went further than we thought he did. He did more for us than we expected that he did. And so this message is a plea for us to embrace the reality that we should fight for holiness in every area of our lives. That we should not tolerate any sort of pet sin. That we should not set aside some area of our life where we tolerate disobedience to God like I used to do. Where we come up with a justification or reason why it's okay to have this pet sin. I want us to push and push and push until we become as holy as we can be. And as soon as you get the order right, that you're not doing it to get love and acceptance, but because you've received love and acceptance, it's not slavery anymore. It is enjoying your reward. It is enjoying your sonship or daughtership from God. That he will work to make you a holy person. And so let us not allow sin to have any stronghold in our lives. So I want to ask you, do you know that when you tolerate sin in your life, you are acting like you are still in the slavery Jesus has already set you free from, and you're giving sin and control over you? You have been set free, the Bible says. And then when you sin, when I sin, I start to act like I'm in slavery again. Sin always puts a desire above God, some value, some desire above God, and whatever is your highest value and desire demands your total allegiance. And since sin will always kill you and always harm you, even though it promises freedom, it is always slavery. There's never, you cannot sin and be free at the same time. You are always being drawn and led away from what will give you life when you give sin the highest priority and value in your heart. There's two lies that I have believed in the past that have led me to tolerate and allow sin to be in my heart. I'm sure there's more lies in this, but I just want to share these two lies with you. Maybe you struggle with them. And the first lie we tell ourselves is, I can control this sin. I can, I'll keep it under control. It's not going to grow out of this little box I've made for it. And it always does. It always gets bigger until it hurts your relationship with God and your brothers and sisters. Don't believe the lie that you can control it. Unless you're putting sin to death, it will grow to control you. You cannot control it. It will control you unless you kill it first. The second lie is that I'm going to give in to this particular sin anyway. I don't have the power to put it to death. So why even fight? It's just going to, it's going to get me eventually one day. Here's another truth I want to proclaim over us, church. There isn't a single sin that you have to commit. Not one. When Jesus says that he has redeemed you, you do not have to sin a particular sin anymore. There's not a sin in your life you're battling that you do not have the power to put to death. Every last one, you have the power to put to death. Just listen to 1 Corinthians 10.13. I'm not making this up. This is what the scriptures are saying. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So what is it like when we as believers tolerate sin in our lives and make peace with certain patterns of disobedience? Since sin always grows beyond the boundaries we try to put it in. And since we don't have to do it, we always choose to do it when we do it. It's like being set free by God and then going up to our old masters, our old sin, our old desires, and saying, bind my hands. Make me a slave again. And some of us feel like we've put handcuffs on ourselves. Click, click, like like you, you feel like you're in handcuffs right now. I've been in that place where I feel like I've been in a downward spiral and there's no way out. You start to sin, you think you're okay, and before you know, you've plunged off the deep end and you don't know what to do. And the good news of this message is that Jesus has provided the way of escape for anyone and everyone tonight. There is keys that he will use to open those shackles and set you free. You don't have to commit a sin, and there's no sin that can keep controlling you unless you let it. And since Jesus has set you free from sin, you can put it to death tonight. And just so you know, this pastor sometimes holds out his hands and puts handcuffs on himself, puts himself back in slavery. Um, I get so angry when I feel like I'm out of control of my life. So angry. And the cuss words that come out of my mouth, you wouldn't believe them. You wouldn't believe them. And afterwards, I feel like I've displeased God so much. How can you call yourself a son of God? He feels so far away from me. And so I'm not saying this, that I've set myself free and you better do the same thing too. I'm saying we all got to start living like we're free. We all got to put our sin to death. We all got to embrace the truth that God really has set us free from our sin. Some of you are probably wondering, okay, thank you for teaching that, but when are you going to actually tell me how to do it? Like, that's, that, that, that's great knowledge. Thank you for lecturing me. But how are, you, are we supposed to do it? And I want to suggest two things. Um, and the first is, I know this, this might sound a little too obvious, but I'm just going to say it, that just the simple knowledge that there's not a sin that you have to commit, the simple knowledge that you have power to put it to death is a game changer. If you don't know that, if you, have a, if you don't have the attitude that I can put this to death, I can start living in obedience, man, that's deflating. It's disarming. I, I heard a quote once. This is just not even a Bible quote. It's just, just someone who said, whether you believe you can do something or can't do it, you're right. 
our attitude and our confidence and our beliefs about ourselves change everything. Do you believe you have the identity of a son of God who can live an obedient and righteous life? Like, do you actually have that belief? When you're facing the sin you've committed for the 10,000th time, do you believe that you're going to fall for the 10,001st time? Or do you believe that tonight is the night it's over? So I just want us to have a whole different mindset when it comes to fighting our sin. And the second point I want to mention is, goes back to our text. I, I skipped a big chunk in the middle. Forgive me for that. Um, verses 69 through 74 says, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to his father Abraham, to grant that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear. There's a lot there. What sticks out? He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Also, to show us the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant and the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. In about five different ways, Luke says that Jesus' coming was a fulfillment of prophecy and promises from God. This is obviously a big deal. Well, I guess Zechariah said it, and Luke wrote it down. Zechariah said it. This is a big deal to him. I don't think that he's just trying to inform our minds that, hey, look, all these promises were kept. Isn't that neat? I think he's trying to inform our hearts. What do I mean by that? God kept his promises. Our hearts can trust him as a promise keeper. You can trust God to keep your promises, to his promises. There is power to live righteously when we trust God to keep his promises. For so long, the Israel people were looking forward to the day where God's people would finally obey. Finally be faithful. We're in that day. We're in the day where we can finally be faithful to God, unlike the Israelites who failed. And they didn't have to fail. If they would have trusted the promises that God made to protect them, to provide for them, they wouldn't have been faithless like they were. And I think the same offer is being made to us. If you trust God's promises— if you trust God's promises, you will find new power to live a righteous life that you didn't have before. And this gets really practical for me. Because I remember when I was in college battling from sin. One verse that was just seared into my memory was Galatians 5.16. It says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Do you want an escape hatch? When you feel like you're about to sin and there's nothing that you can do, memorize that verse. I would quote it over and over and over and over again in my head. And that's just one verse. There's so many verses about how God will help you in the moment of temptation. 
So let's not go into battle against our sin unprepared. Let's not have minds that have been filled with Instagram and Netflix and not God's word. So that's just one super practical idea I commend to you is memorize Galatians 5.16, memorize 1 Corinthians 10.13, and say them over and over yourself when you feel like there's nothing you can do to stop. And I can testify, you will receive new help to become like Jesus. He wants you to become like you. And he didn't give you those promises willy-nilly. He gave you the promises for a reason. Now, as you're listening to this sermon, one question that might be coming into your head is, Ross, are you saying that I can live a perfectly holy life without ever sinning again? And I don't have time to get into that. <laughs> Listen to our podcast <laughs> this week. I, I'm not trying to say that. I am saying there isn't a sin that you have to commit. There's no sin that you have to commit. Please just tune in and listen to how I would answer and tackle that question, how we would. Now, focus, we focus a lot on the negative side of killing our sin and not as much on the positive side of just the sheer beauty of obedience, like the sheer beauty of a life that's surrendered to Christ and lives like him. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's not what our culture says is sort of shriveled up, puritanical, judgmental life. It's, it's just this gorgeous thing when a person is surrendered to Christ and they love other people more than themselves. And you can just tell that the person's in love with Jesus. And I just love some of the descriptions from our text. Verse 75, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Or ver verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This church is so beautiful. Like, I just, I just look, and, and the people I know, you're so beautiful, what God is doing. And there's way more beauty that could, that could become. That could be the case. We could look more like Jesus than we do already. There's a thousand ways I could look more like Jesus. And let's not settle for less than we've been offered by Jesus Christ. He went through too much. He suffered too much. He sacrificed too much for us to not, to settle for too little. He gave us so much. So let us, I just want to see this community grow to be even more beautiful and to love one another and to love God even more than we do. And one other aspiration I have for our community. I just wonder what which of us are missing out on God's purpose because our sin is blinding us to his purpose for us? Someone, someone has once said that the reason that there aren't more missionaries on the field right now is because of sexual sin. I just wonder which missionaries are called and you don't know it because you can't even hear God because of the sin in your life. 
I wonder if revival is tearing here in South Minneapolis because we haven't reached a new level of dependence and holiness. We want to be a church where the marginalized and the sinful and the broken meet Jesus. I'm just not confident he'll use us powerfully in that way until we get rid of the pet sins in our lives. So you can be more than just more beautiful. You can be a powerful tool of God that you have not become yet if you put to death more of the areas you have not yet surrendered to Jesus Christ. That's my desire for you. I want you to lead a hundred more pe- times more people to Christ than I ever lead. I want you to counsel and help a hundred times more people than I ever counsel and help. But we'll, we'll always be spinning our tires until we repent of those areas that we've been holding back for ourselves and refusing to hand over to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a beauty and a glory that we see in Jesus that should draw us ultimately to want to be like him. He is the kindest, gentlest, strongest, firmest, most honest, selfless, sacrificial person you'll ever meet. And he is so worthy. He is so worthy of everything we can give him. And there's a kind of statement you can make with your life that you can't make with your words. You can say all those things again and again and again. But people can really tell what matters to you. God can really tell what matters to you by what happens when you live. And we will give the most glory to Jesus Christ when we not only confess him, but live like him. You become a reflector that shines what he's like and reflects back to him that he's valuable and important. Friends, we have so many reasons, so many reasons to obey. The highest one is that Jesus deserves it and has come and given us all the power, all the help we need to live a life like he did. So let's take the next step. Let's take the next step. Where are you called to obey? (laughs) What new area of surrender are you called into right now? Maybe you've been ignoring it for a while. Maybe you've been refusing for a while. This is God's call to you right now. Take that next step. Please pray with me. Precious Jesus, we will never totally comprehend everything you've done for us, but we pray that you would comprehend it a little more right now. I ask that anyone who is gripped with shame and guilt would feel free right now in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that anyone who's trapped in disobedience would feel new freedom that they've never felt before in Jesus Christ. And the result would be passionate worship and joy in Jesus Christ. May we, as we put to death the hardest areas that cause us to go the deepest into our own sinful hearts, 
as that happens and it's hard, please give us at the same time new heights of joy as we become closer to Jesus and become like Jesus. That's all we want is to be closer to Jesus and to be like Jesus and to lead as many other people to do that also. So please grant us that in Jesus' name. Amen.